What's up, everybody? Stu Blackwell here on the very first episode of the Warrior Legacy Podcast. Thank you for spending your time here. It does mean a lot to me. We've all got responsibilities, and time is a precious commodity. So for this introductory episode, I want to talk about what this show is all about, and that is learning from the Warrior's example and why that's important. What that means to me is taking positives and negatives from past fighting cultures, regardless of your background, and applying them today so that we can alter our lives. Now, even if you've never worn a uniform, you can still pull a lot of valuable information from this. So while you may not be preparing to fight an actual physical war, the concepts and the values that we're going to discuss here can enhance you as a human being if you apply them. For veterans, these conversations can serve as a reminder to us of our responsibility to be a cut above, which is not meant to be condescending. It's important to us because, first of all, we're human. Our experiences have consisted, at least partially, of challenges that most people haven't had. But that doesn't change the fact that we're not perfect, and especially now that we've moved on to the next chapter in our lives, we may not have that close friend around to keep challenging us to move forward. So think of this show as an extension of that. And what I want you to keep in mind is that we can collectively enrich the interaction between each other now and moving forward. And the need for this can clearly be seen in the difference in attitudes towards war and the treatment of service members during the Vietnam era as opposed to today. Now, during the 60s and the 70s, guys were coming home from a different kind of war in Vietnam, and they were spit on and called baby killer, and today is the complete opposite. There's a lot more support for us, but sometimes it comes from a place of sympathy and even pity, and victimhood is almost expected from us because we deployed overseas or because we fought. I believe that we are the most babied generation of veteran in the history of our country which we'll elaborate on in a later episode. If we look at it as a spectrum, so the Vietnam mindset on one side and current attitude on another, as a society, I think we should be aiming more in the middle of those two. And I'll give an example here in a minute. Now, to be fair, I do think that that is where most people kind of aim on that spectrum. So why choose war? Why not business or politics or religion? Something that everybody can relate to. Well, firstly, everyone pays taxes. So whether you like it or not, or support the services and the operations that they're involved in, or hate them, we all have a vested interest in this. Uh, Secondly, I'm not even remotely an expert in any of those other fields. So it doesn't make any sense for me to offer advice in those areas. Um, War, but specifically the preparation for it, the training and social environment and the personal internal changes that come as a product of that, that is where my experience lies. Okay, I am not a war hero. Um, I enlisted in 2007 because I just wanted more out of life. I didn't want to follow the typical path of going to college, getting a job, getting married, having a family, and then working to death. I wanted challenge and adventure. Marine Corps offered that. Patriotic sentiment was an underlying tone in my decision, but it wasn't the key motivating factor. 
on top of that, uh, I remember watching footage of the towers getting hit on September 11th. Uh, I, I was in uh, seventh grade social studies class, actually, in a private school that my parents had to work very, very hard to keep us in. And I'm sitting there at my desk doing my classwork, and, and my teacher just gets up and leaves in the middle of the class. And, yeah, all right. That's kind of weird. And, uh, you know, I go back to doing what I'm doing, and uh, a couple of minutes later, she hurries back in with this giant TV and, you know, wheels it in, plugs it up, and turns it on, and and we just sit there and we watch it. And nobody talks, nobody's out of order. It's just quiet except for the television. And they sent us home after that, which never happened. Um, But I remember at that age, just understanding that something big had happened, but I didn't fully grasp how significantly that event had changed so many lives. And so flash forward seven years later, by the time I signed up, um, We've been fighting in Afghanistan since then and, and Iraq since 2003. And I just I, I hated the fact that I had missed it all. You know, I wanted to get in on the action before I missed the opportunity. And I had to wonder what if I had fought for the rest of my life. It just it seemed unbearable to me. So I signed an infantry contract because, well, what's the point in doing something if you're not going to go all in? I had an older brother at the time who was already an infantryman and he kind of gave me the inside scoop on the different jobs that the Corps offered and told me what to expect. So I'm 19 at the time thinking to myself, if I'm going to do this, then I want to fight. And if I end up getting killed, I want to be remembered as someone who was fully committed to what I was doing. So it it was infantry or bust for me. Now granted, I'm 19 at the time, 19, all right? Very inexperienced, and uh, (laughs) I got a lot to learn. So I attended recruit training at Paris Island, South Carolina in July of 2007, and then infantry school at Camp Geiger before I was assigned to 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines in Jacksonville, North Carolina. Now, quick note on Marine recruit training. It's the most intense of all the services. That's not up for debate. Um, There's... No time off for communication with family, except through written letters, and the physical requirements were much more strenuous when I was going through. Uh, There's a pride that's kind of nationally associated with completing it because of that. And, you know, what isn't common knowledge really is that for those of us that went on to become infantrymen, that was the easiest part of our journey. And I want you to remember that as we move through this. As hard as it is, it only gets harder for the grunts. The personal development that comes from the infantry lifestyle, and I stress, not a job, but a lifestyle, is what the Marine Corps is known for. Over the course of my career, which ended on December 22nd of 2016, uh, just shy of a decade, I deployed six times. And now only one of those was a combat deployment. And that was uh, the tail end of Operation Mushtarik in 2010, a place called Marja, Afghanistan. 
And that's significant because America was still deploying troops to Iraq and Afghanistan during the first half of my career. And you know, we had guys deployed as, as much or more as I did, but all they did was fight in one of those countries. Now, I wanted that when I signed up, but after you join, you rarely get to choose where you go. Um, so the other deployments consisted of uh, two Marine Expeditionary Units. Um, that's when an infantry unit boards a naval, a naval vessel and serves as a sort of quick mobile response force for any crisis that pops up in a certain part of the world, from fighting to providing humanitarian aid or evacuating U.S. personnel, anything. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I did my second enlistment in um, Guantanamo or in a fleet anti-terrorism security team uh, or FAST company. We got acronyms for everything. Um, I deployed to Guantanamo Bay with them and to Manama, Bahrain twice. Um, and the first time in Bahrain was 2012 and we got a rapid reaction mission to the U.S. Embassy in Sana'a, Yemen when it was overrun. Uh, just to add a little perspective here, the Benghazi incident was happening at the same time. Um, so around all these deployments uh, was a training cycle, and those times were where I learned the most about myself, who I really was, what I was capable of, and, and how to work with people. Um, to use a sports analogy, so athletes win games during the practices leading up to the game. Similar concept. Combat experience and performance, which we'll get into in great detail throughout this show, is a confirmation of training habits and discipline, among other things. There are different elements that get introduced when it's for real and it's not training anymore, for sure. But we view it as a unit that hasn't completely destroyed itself during training, has no hope of success when it comes time to execute. And I tell a version of that to my sons when we practice martial arts or soccer, like, hey, bud, you know, winning that gold medal or scoring those goals is just a formality if you prepared properly and executed. I want them to understand that the journey is where the real development takes place. And the result is a confirmation of that journey. And I learned that in the infantry because the cultural values that we had were based on what would propel us to win in the worst case scenario. So that's how we approach training in the months leading up to a deployment. And so military culture, quote unquote, is it's commonly associated with, you know, uniformity. Okay. Most of the time this refers to the way service members dress and talk, but in recent years, what I've seen in the corporate world and casual conversation too is that that view can, doesn't always, but it can extend to the way that we think and even our, our personal lifestyles. And it's a very robotic, cookie cutter sort of view. Um, so as an example, um, every time someone asks if I was or am in the military and I tell them that I was, the reply is, Thank you for your service. Now, the intent is respectful, no doubt. But the comment, without any further inquiry, suggests the assumption that everyone who does or has worn a uniform is the same. Because if that's true, then well, why investigate further? Most of the time, there's no follow-up. No, well, 
What job did you do? Did you deploy? Where to? What was that like? Just the thank you for your service blanket statement. And keeping in touch with you know good buddies of mine that, that live all over the country, they've all frequently had similar experiences. Uh, this this all-too-common type of interaction merits its own episode, and we'll get into that as well um, at another time. But what I want to tell you today is that the, the social and personal aspects of the service are far more complex than the cookie-cutter troop mentality allows. Um, the infantry has its own culture, which is separate from all the other services and occupational specialties. And if we want a better understanding of what our tax dollars pay for and what some of our children will be a part of one day, then that assembly line service member view has got to go. Uh, The Marine Corps is great in a lot of ways, but what it's not so good at sometimes is acknowledging when it's okay to break away from a social norm. And the reason is to avoid placing value on individuality over fighting effectiveness. Okay, which is perfectly fine. Famous Marine sayings like uh, uh, first a fight or once a Marine, always a Marine. And <laughs> my, my personal favorite, <laughs> every Marine a rifleman. You know, they, they all perpetuate this. Um, and, and towards the end of my active duty tenure, there was a concerted effort from the top of the ranks to maintain this ludicrous image of every Marine being the exact same. Same capabilities, same level of contribution, etc. You know, we were told that the reason was was that America wanted it that way, which doesn't make any sense because, well, no two people are exactly the same, and frankly, most people don't care. Um, the commandant at the time, General Amos, uh, went so far as to create formal required training to help perpetuate this mentality, which serves as direct evidence of the point. Uh, which is that you know senior Marine Corps leadership doesn't like change much. Uh, it sounds really bad, but I mean, think of the opposite scenario here. What would it look like if we tried to change the way we think, train, and fight every time somebody discovered something new? We'd never accomplish anything. Because we'd be too busy chasing those changes, unable to keep up. The world's too big for that, and our enemies would exploit it. So the hard-headedness does serve a purpose at times. However, the fact that I just stated about the infantry having its own culture is not one of those instances. You know, Most senior Marines, staff, and officers will swear up and down that being a Marine trumps any occupation simply because it's been that way for long before the war on terror. It's false. It's absolutely not true. Part of the reason for this is that it can be misinterpreted as degrading. Um, But acknowledging the fact that the infantry community is a completely different beast altogether than everybody else doesn't erode or diminish the commitment of the administrative clerk or the logistics specialist or the aircraft mechanic or, or any other occupational specialty of service members. So, Let's go back to the casual conversation example. Um, you know, most of us get why that mentality exists, okay? But to shed a little bit more light on it, the same guys that are pushing that collective identity 
to the public and tried to push it on us, you know, guys like General Amos are the ones that directly address the nation. You know, not guys like me on what we call the small unit level, where our only priority is becoming the most lethal savages on the face of the earth capable of total annihilation. Now, grunts have been involved in humanitarian aid missions and embassy evacuations and all sorts of other operations, but that's not what we're meant for. We're meant for one thing, to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy. In order to go places where traditional or current American values like tolerance, sympathy, inclusion, and diversity literally don't exist, we have to have a culture that is based on different values. Values like ruthlessness, selflessness, toughness, just to name a few. And each one of those is going to have its own conversation, all with personal experiences that helped emphasize the importance of them and validated their necessity to me. The one that merits introduction in this episode, though, is personal development. Now, most of us, most Americans anyway, in this country view war in such a negative light because we live so well here that the thought of personal growth in such an environment is difficult to fathom at best, but more often than not, not even considered to be possible. And that's where I think the sympathy and pity come from. From, again, not everyone, but it is there. And that's another limiting belief that we have to shatter together. I can honestly say that I know far more men that are better husbands, fathers, and human beings in general because of their experiences in the infantry. You know, painful though they were, than, than guys who are riddled with, you know, PTSD and victimhood. I'm, I'm one of them, you know? That's a fact. And so I challenge you to look at this from that perspective. The culture is different with its own values, social practices, and purpose. If you take nothing else away from this episode, adopt that mindset as we go forward. I'm not asking you to agree with everything. Just be open to another possibility. So that's going to be it for today, everyone. Please like and subscribe to the show. If you want more content, follow me on Instagram at stblackwell or on Twitter at stblackwell07. I've got some big announcements coming up that you don't want to miss out on. Thanks for your time, everybody. Stay savage.